Well, good morning, MCC. Glad you guys are here today. Hey, quick disclaimer before we dive into today's topic. As you know, we're, we're journeying through a series where we're fully going verse by verse, word by word through this sermon that Jesus preached. We refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're hitting a topic of lust and adultery. And so I'll just say, whether you're watching online, you got some kids in the room or you're here in this room and you got your kids with us. Um, if you have a kid specifically, if they're in that like middle school down, just be prepared. That's kind of where we're going today. You know, if you're not really looking forward to having the talk in the minivan, you may want to you go put them in an environment where they can get Jesus a little bit better on their level. We're, we're going to talk about some of the, the real life grown up stuff that Jesus dives into today. So I'll kind of let you be that judge. No harm, no foul. If you want to get up, it's not a distraction. Just, you know, take them where they need to go and we'll dive into that. Um, let me pray and then we're going to dive in. Sound good? Jesus, a subject matter like this meets us all at a bunch of different places, but you went there. So we're willing to go there too. Meet us while we are here, Jesus. By the power of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit in these moments, we brought in a lot of different stuff. I pray we leave lighter because we lay things down at your feet. I pray the day that some people who are broken will feel you begin to put them back together. In your name, amen. I want to start today in a place I don't normally start. Actually, I've never started. I'm going to start with a quote from a liberal feminist atheist. Sound good? All right. You're going you're gonna to see why in a second. We'll, we'll get there. Don't freak out. Uh, it's not, not normally where we start. We usually start with Jesus quotes, not feminists uh, who are liberals and also atheists. Um, but this is where we're going to start. Her name's Naomi Wolf. Um, this is what she said. Again, she's talking about pornographic imagery. Uh, she's talking about the studies that she's um, had with these um, issues and the people who are experiencing um, what they bring about in their lives. She says this. When I ask about loneliness... A deep, sad silence descends on the audience of young men and women alike. They know they're lonely. Together, even when they're conjoined. And this imagery, she's talking about pornography, is a big part of that loneliness. What they don't know is how to get out. How to find each other, again, erotically face-to-face. Other cultures know this. And I'm not advocating that we return to the days of hiding female sexuality, but I am noting that the powers in charge of sex are maintained when there are some sacredness to it, when it's not on tap all the time. In many more traditional cultures, it is not prudery that leads them to discourage men from looking at pornography. It is rather because these cultures understand male sexuality and what it takes to keep men and women turned on to one another over time. To help men, in particular, to, as the Old Testament puts it, rejoice with the wife of thy youth, let her breast satisfy thee at all times, these cultures urge men not to look at porn because they know that a powerful erotic bond between parents is a key element of a strong family. And again, that's a quote from an atheist, liberal, feminist, and maybe you didn't catch what was happening there, but this woman is affirming the biblical ethic of sex and relationships, which should kind of cause all of us to kind of throw up a, like at least a little bit of a what? Why? I thought they were way on the other side of the fence. I thought they were like, eat, drink, sleep, drink, whatever, do whatever you want to, be merry, let it all hang out. Has much freedom, free love, all that, all that you want. 
But what's happening right now is the people who are studying society, the humanitarians, the scholars, are saying, we've gone too far. We've messed up. Something is broken. And they're actually, and this is what is mind-boggling, they're actually swinging the pendulum all the way back and going, you know that dusty old book on grandmama's shelf? Maybe some of those things weren't so hokey. Maybe there's some truth. And today, if you've got a Bible, I invite you to go to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus, he gives word to this. He speaks in, he, he begins to unpack in his sermon that he preaches as he's starting his ministry, as he's jumping on the scene. He's saying, this is who I am. This is what the kingdom of God is now at hand. And here is how I'm taking all the things that you used to think. And I'm challenging you to rethink those from an outside religion that was just for the haves into a religion that is way more than a religion, but a relationship that's based off not what you do, but what's in your heart, what you believe, and then what comes out. So let's see what Jesus had to say. Matthew 5, start in verse 27 and go through 30. Jesus is talking. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. Now again, like your first time here at MCC, you're like, dang, what a Sunday to choose. Um, Like if you were online, you may have already clicked off or you're like here going like, hey, I wonder what happens. Um, Listen, here's why we're here. We're here, like I said earlier, we're here because Jesus went here. And, and the thing that you, if you stick around MCC for any short amount of time, you're going to come to this place where you realize this is a church that plays a really high view on what Jesus said. And we believe we can't just pick and choose what he said and, and kind of go, okay, well, I like some of these things that he said, but I don't like this thing that he said. But we're going to go, hey, if we're going to and, and live off of what he said was true, that you can either have all of me or you can have none of me. You can't pick and choose. You can't give your heart in pieces. You're either going to give me that whole thing, let me be the Lord over the whole thing, or not. So if you want to keep your life, that's a surefire way to lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, then and only then will you find it. So he lays this out there, which we got to come into in a talk like this. And again, you guys kind of have an idea a little bit of where we're going to go. I want to, before I start a talk where we're going to talk about lust, adultery, sin, saying words like pornography, going to maybe draw some images of a sexual history that you have or sexual right now that you have and the bondage and the chains that you may even feel. Here's one I want to draw the tension out between. Two words, both start with C. Conviction and condemnation. See, what Satan would love to do in a conversation like this is he would love to heap condemnation and shame on you, to condemn you, to say you are bad, you are broken because what you did that was bad and how you broke purity. But conviction is something that is wholly different. Conviction is the warm embrace of the Holy Spirit saying, you are broken, but you're not beyond repair. Run to the Father. That's where healing is at. The Bible made it really clear, especially for those of us, if you are in Christ, you have put your hope and your faith and your trust in him. In Romans 8, it says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you at any point in this start feeling like I'm worthless, I'm a piece of junk, man, I have no hope, God can never use someone like me. Those are lies for an enemy who wants to keep you bound in the chains that you may have already feel. So let's go through this verse. 
Starting 27, we're going to go, like I said, kind of word by word, verse by verse. Jesus starts out. And again, this is how he is doing these things. As we enter into the series called Arrhythmia, that's what we started last week or the week before that, and we're talking about anger. We're talking about the things that Jesus particularly is saying. These are the things. If your heart is going to be surrendered to me, here are the things that will cause your heart to beat out of rhythm with mine. He had talked into anger. Now he's talking into lust. So he says, hey, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, which that is 100% true. That is one of the commandments. That's seven to be exact. Seventh commandment, Jesus saying, hey, don't commit adultery. And now Jesus isn't going, hey, you've heard this said. Now here's what I say. He's not doing that to say what you heard was wrong. He's just saying the way you have been taught to interpret what God said back then is wrong. Because the way it was taught was, hey, you can do literally anything you want to. As long as you don't commit adultery, you're good. He's going, no. Things are changing this new kingdom that I am bringing to initiate that, that is now on the scenes with boots on the ground here on this hill in Galilee is not one that just cares about what you do externally but realizes that every external action comes from an internal mindset and heart set. And so he says, hey, this is what you heard. So before we dive fully into where he goes next, when he begins to unpack lust, we have to understand the biblical context of sex, the sex ethic of scripture, all right? Two more C words that we're going to kind of navigate the tension between and help us try to maybe understand what sex really is, how God really created it to be, and what it is not, okay? So these two C words are this, consumer and covenant. And it's the tension between the two, whether or not sex is a consumer good or a covenant good, the Bible makes it very clear that it's something to be experienced within the covenant of marriage. And covenant is a promise between me and God and a spouse, you, God, and a spouse. It's this promise that I will be together till death do us part, that we will be in this holy union that is not this thing that Americans or humans or people on earth created, but is defined and exemplified by God and his marriage with the church. He says, this is a covenant, and this is a consumer. And sex was only designed to be experienced within this covenant. So let me help you understand a little bit of more of kind of what I mean by this. So let's talk about the... Uh, the consumer side of stuff. Um, my wife, she is in a relationship with Aldi. Um, <laughs> yeah. She's in a relationship with Aldi, all right? Now, you be the judge of what kind of relationship this is. So she's in a relationship with Aldi, and then there's agreements in this relationship. There's a give and take, okay? So she agrees that she will carry a quarter with her on her keychain everywhere she goes. If you ask my wife, let me see your keys. Right now, if she hands you her keys, there's this little thing that looks like a grocery thing, and it has a little slot just specifically for her Aldi quarter. Whatever. Um, I hate when I have to borrow a car because I have these clearly feminine keychain with me because uh, it's purple, and it has an Aldi coin in it. Anyway, that's besides the point. So I'm, I'm agreeing that I'm going to pay for my own buggy. I'm not going to have somebody bag my own groceries. The store's kind of going to be at random. There's going to be a lot of boxes. Nobody's going to really give me great customer service. But the prices are going to be good. Hey, where are my Aldi people at? Aldi people online? Okay, cool. Yeah. So we agree that that's what we'll do. We'll do these things as long as you continue to give us groceries at a discount rate. Now, the moment that she walks out of Aldi after shoving all the groceries in there and bringing them home for me to kind of walk in with like this. Like the moment that she walks out of Aldi and takes the receipt and looks at it and the price that we paid for those groceries is equivalent to what we could have paid for groceries at Publix, we're not going to Aldi anymore. She's gonna take the keychain off, same way you would. Now is that a consumer relationship? 
or a covenant. That's a consumer. As long as you as the vendor continue to meet my needs, I will stay in this relationship. And sadly, that's how many of us experience sex for the first time. It wasn't a covenant. It was a consumer good. Whether it was with a, a website, a magazine, prom night, whatever. It was not in the context of a covenant. And it was done as something either to keep somebody around or it was done as something to say, okay, well, let's do this and then we'll see where things go from here. Or it was done without your consent or whatever. But it was not done within that context of the covenant. There's a, a pastor, that I, an author I, I really respect. He said this about this topic. He said, covenant relationships are far more loving and intimate than legal relationships. And at the same time, it is also more binding and enduring than just an emotional relationship. A covenant is more intimate because it is legal. See, in a consumer relationship, and and some of you, you're experiencing this, in a consumer relationship, my needs are greater than the relationship. And so, if my needs are being met, well, then the relationship can keep going. But if my needs are not being met, well, then the relationship can end. But in a covenant relationship, the relationship in and of itself is what takes precedent and saying, I am willing to sacrifice my needs, my emotions, for the sake of maintaining this relationship. Now, the only other example I could give you as to what would be kind of on the same level of this covenant type of relationship is that of parenting, all right? It's the only other relationship that we have where despite your needs being met, you can actually grow in a deeper love for that individual. Because parenting is very lopsided, right? This child comes out, they pee on you, burp on you, spit on you, change their diapers, and all these other types of things. You know what's crazy? Despite them giving you anything in that relationship, except for maybe a smile every now and then, and it was just because they released some gas. (laughs) Despite all of that, your love, day after day, week after week, week after week, it continues to grow. It's not because their needs being met. It's because you are locked into a relationship. You're in covenant. And that's the bond in which sex is supposed to be experienced. And this is why sex outside, this is where sex inside a consumer relationship is so lacking integrity. Because it's asking somebody to do with their body what they're not doing with their whole life. It's asking somebody to become physically vulnerable with each other, to do physical disclosure, but not whole life disclosure. And so God says, here's the context in which I want this to happen. And if it is not happening within this context, then it is not right. Now, we're all across the board when it comes to this type of stuff. And there are three primary categories we fall into. We either view sex as something that is gross, and even some of you today are like, this is gross, we should never ever in a million years talk about this as a church. Um, or you would say, this is God, and then this is, maybe church people don't necessarily fall in this category a whole lot, or they would say, this is God. And so my life revolves around this. The jobs I'll take, the places I'll go, the things I'll, and again, a God is anything that you revolve and make your choices based off of what appeases or what would give you this certain thing. So some people say sex is God. And then other people, and I think this is the biblical view of it, it's a gift. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed. So we can hear a conversation on, on sex and go, oh my goodness, oh, that's, that's a different. And that's because Satan has distorted our view of it. 
Sex is great. And I'm not ashamed to talk about it because it is something that in the right context is, is an amazing, beautiful thing that God created to bind man and woman together, to create healthy families, to create healthy parenting, to create children who love him, and to change cities because of that. So I'm not mad at sex. I'm mad at the way the enemy has distorted it. And I think you should be too. We're going to lean into that. We're going to talk about that as we go through this conversation today. But I want you to understand that it is, in fact, a gift. And to be able to see the fact that it is a gift, all you have to do is go to the beginning of how our story started. Go to Genesis. Genesis, you know, right in the first few chapters. God creates Adam. He creates everything else. Creates all this whole environment for the sake of pleasure. Creates Adam. Knocks him out. Says, hey, it's not good that you're here by yourself. Creates Eve. Adam wakes up. They're standing in front of him. It's a naked woman. Again, they're naked and unashamed. That's how God created the garden to be. God creates Eve. Standing there before him. Adam goes into the first R&B song ever and it's just bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And he just, this is what he's, these are the first words of his mouth as he sees this in front of him. And, and hear me, God is not, God is not sitting up there cross-armed going, Adam, put your clothes on, like son. Like he, he's not mad, he's not upset. He's going, okay, this, this is how it's supposed to be. And you know what he doesn't do either? He doesn't go, Adam, go work hard, go till the ground, go do your things, go finish naming all those daggum animals, and then when you come back, I got something for you. No. First command, be fruitful, multiply. That's right out of the gate. I mean, I could, I could take you to passages, Song of Solomon. Man, the imagery there would make all of us blush. And even the quote, even the quote that, that Naomi Wolf, the, the feminist, um, you know, liberal philosopher, or not philosopher, but, but professor, the quote that she gave, she was quoting out of Proverbs 6. This passage, I'll read it to you. It says, again, there's really no way around this. Use your imagination. May your fountain be blessed. And again, she's, she's not, this dude doesn't own a water fountain. Um, May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. Which again, we kind of blush. And go, oh, but, but again, sex is a gift created by God. And here's how I know this. Scientifically, breasts aren't required to reproduce. Like God put it, and again, welcome to MCC. God put them there for enjoyment. Like they're there for a reason. This is what God, I mean, again, and they're there. In the right context, they're there for enjoyment. They're there for a reason. And so it's this gift that God has given us, but I think, that, and this is where, I mean, this is where we're gonna, I mean, drive home the whole thing today. I think the problem is this whole sex, this whole, you know, male and female body and everything else, the problem is, is we've been looking for it to give us something, give us something that is good, but we've been looking for it to supply something it was never meant to supply. We've been looking for the right thing in the wrong place. And so Jesus continues on. He says, this is, this is the really amazing, great thing that sex is. But then he says, okay, now here's the line that you guys are crossing in verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To which, man, I remember reading that as, as a young man and going, man, that's tough. Like the weight of the shame and the guilt and everything was just all on me in that moment of going, I feel like that's all I've, you know, that's my life right now. Hormones through the roof and you know, everything. Wow, that's a lot, Jesus. What do you mean? Well, let's try to get what he means by that word. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, okay? So let me start with what he doesn't mean before I tell you what he does. What he doesn't mean is you recognizing that a woman is beautiful. 
I'm recognizing that, that another guy, uh, ladies in the room, recognizing that, man, that is a good-looking man. They're attractive. And you, whatever. It's not just going, hey, they look good. That's not it. Lust is something deeper. deeper. And you can actually tell it in the Greek word. It's this Greek word, lustfully, is trans- or lust is translated epithumia. And literally it means an over-desire. And it's not just confined to the context of sexual lusting after sex or lusting after someone's body or lusting after anything in that necessarily sexual category. It can be anything. In a second, Jesus is going to actually, in, in Matthew 6, in the same sermon, talk about lusting after money. He's used the same word. It's an over-desire. So the problem, friend, is not that you have a sex drive. It's the problem that you let sex drive everything that you do, everything that you think. Jesus is saying, it's good that you have one. I gave it to you. The problem is when you let it control you, let it lead you. When he's talking about looking at a woman lustfully, saying you've already committed adultery within your heart, lust is imagining what you would do to or with someone if you knew there wouldn't be any consequences. And see, that's what's so dangerous about pornography in 2021, is that's the lie that Satan sells with it. Hey, this is a safe thing. It's not a secretary. It's not a girl down in the red light district. It's not your old fling that you connected with, that you've been imagining on Facebook. It's not that. It's just an innocent thing on a screen. He goes, no, that's not the reality. But what's crazy in the world we live in is Jesus, he was saying this to men who, if they were lucky, would see five naked women in their entire life. Now, like a middle school boy could see more, more naked women than man back then would see in his entire life. A middle school boy could see that in five minutes. So our world is drastically different. It has drastically changed. And it's actually gotten incredibly more difficult to remain pure, to keep our eyes from seeing it. Because we all walk around with these potential porn machines in our pockets. We send our kids off to school with them. We let them play on them when they get home from school. We just say, here's this. It's dangerous. See, Matthew 6, 22 through 23, Jesus said this. And again, this is where he was talking about it from the context of greed. But he says this about our eyes. 622, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. Now, that word good does not just mean like you got 20-20 vision. When he says your eyes are good, the Greek word translated there actually means when your eyes are singular. And he's not saying when you're a cyclops either. He's saying when you have eyes for one thing. And in the context of marriage, he's saying, I have eyes, and again, some of us guys, whether we, you're really meant it or not, we, we tried to mean it. We said, baby, I only have eyes for you. And Jesus is going, yeah, that's what I really want for you to be able to say. But the problem is, is, is we are not just double-minded, but we are double-eyed. And so we will say, I only have eyes for you, but then we'll see something else and we'll go, I wonder what that would be like. And he goes from there and he says, okay. If your eyes are feeding your imagination and that's finding its way into your heart and it's causing your heart to beat out of rhythm with me, then we have got to take this incredibly serious. And what I want you to not miss 
is he's connecting the same two things. Really, the same big idea of this message and the same big idea of last week's message are the exact same thing. When we're talking about anger, Jesus' uh, brother, James, he was talking about this. He said, where are all these fights and arguments and quarrels? Where do they come from you? He said, don't they come from the desires that battle within your heart? And he goes, you, ask, you have it, you don't, you ask, you don't get these things you want. He says, you don't get it because you don't go to God for it. Which is his way of saying, you're looking to someone to be or to give to you something that God can only be or give to you. And it is the exact same thing here when he begins to have this conversation on lust. He's saying, okay, here was when something really bad happens to you. This is what you want to do. Now he's saying, here, these are the things really good that you want. Here's the great thing. He talked about anger and pleasure. Both of them, you're going to have the propensity in your jacked up, sin-scarred heart to pursue it in a way that is outside of my gospel. You're going to try to get it your way. You're going to lie, cheat, and steal. You're going to get payback. You're going to manipulate and take advantage. Click on something you shouldn't have clicked on. The problem isn't that you have a bad desire. The problem is that you've looked for something or someone else to fill it instead of Jesus. And that's where he says, we've got to take this serious. That's why he says what he says in Matthew 5, 29. He says, if your right eye caused you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And again, he, he's, when he talks about hell here, which is very ferocious, and let me just list you down easy here. He's not saying cut your eyes off, because again, if we cut off our right eye, uh, our left eye will start lusting. That's not his point. He's saying take it incredibly serious. But when he says you'll be thrown into hell, what he's saying here is you were thinking that lusting after that could satisfy the thirst. The word hell there is this, referring to this garbage dump that was outside of most every city, and the, the, the particular one around where they were at was this one called Gehenna. And this was uh, referred to as this perpetual burning garbage dump. And the thing that he's alluding to is the thing that you're seeking to satisfy the desire is actually going to be counteracted by the thing that is the unquenchable fire that never goes out. You sought to satisfy it, but you couldn't. It's being out in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by water, but not a drop to drink. 30 goes on and he says, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. And he is exact, trying to do exactly what you think he's trying to do there, fellas. And, and I'm not saying that to try to be uh, crude or, or, or uh, rash. There are dead guys 100 years older than most of us in this room who have written dusty old commentaries that sit on my shelves that say the exact same thing, that that's what, the point he was trying to make for the people in the crowd that day. Now, his point wasn't go cut things off. Maybe a way he would say it to our culture here, because this is how we've argued things, and this is how we say, well, I'm a, well, I'm a guy, and I just have needs, and I just have hormones. Jesus would look at us and go, okay, if your hormones cause you to sin, cut them out and throw them away. See, the point he's making is not self-mutilation. The point he's making is your logic is stupid. You think that it's some outward thing that you can do to fix what's really broken and jacked up in your heart. You're, you're, you're false on that. Your heart is messed up. Your heart is torn. And that's where he's coming against all of the, the religious elite who said, hey, as long as you're not sleeping with somebody, having sexual intercourse with somebody who's not your wife, you're good. And Jesus is going, that's disgusting. My, God, my father sees all of this. Your righteousness before him is filthy rags. Get it together. He's seeing your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're, you're, you're doing when nobody else is looking. He knows those things. He's saying your heart is wrong. Your heart is messed up. 
And he's saying the gateway for what has found its way into your heart is what you've seen with your eyes. So he's saying, I need you to cut those things off. I need you to cut off what you see on your phone. I need you to cut off that certain person who you'll go out of your way to kind of go their direction. I need you to cut off the things that you're watching. I need you to cut off some of these things because they're finding their way into your imagination and they're finding their way in your heart. Again, same thing that he was doing with anger. He's saying somebody does something really wrong to you. And we've all had these moments. Again, murder is in this very same way from the lust side of things. It's going, man, if I knew that there was going to be no punishment, I would walk up to my boss and punch him right in the jugenum, just right there in the stomach, try to make him throw up as fast as like, you just guess what you'd want to do. And that's what we want when somebody makes us really anger. He stands from the same side. What made you feel bad? It's the same thing with what makes you want to feel good. You go, ooh, man, if I could get away with that and there'd be no punishment, that's what I would do. He said, it's the same thing. He said, your imagination is what's causing your heart to beat out of rhythm with God. And that's why he equates anger with murder and lust with adultery. Because he says, I love you enough that I took on all the weight of the world's sin. And so because I took on all the weight of the world's sin, every bad deed, everything that was done wrong, not just in the moment, but even the temptation that led to it, I'm going to play this out for you. I've already gone and looked downstream. I've looked downstream from uh, anger, and it led to death. I've looked downstream from lust, and it led to adultery. Let me just tell you what's out there. He's saying, don't even get in that creek. It's bad. And it only leads to a heart that will become so out of rhythm with mine that you'll think you have everything you need and you'll have nothing. And he, I think, offers us a better way out, guys. And when I'm the last little bit of time I have, I'll try to take you to a different way out. Now, a lot of times, you may have been in churches and you, you've heard this message before. And at this point, and this is how I've done this before too, You'll hear the pastor start transitioning to some incredibly practical things. He'll put a slide up with all these resources and things you can download to put on your phone and for apps and accountability. And get an accountability partner, do all these things. Don't look at this. Quit watching these things, blah, 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 and all those things. And yes, those are 100% good, and I believe the Holy Spirit's going to lead you to some of those actions. I'm not going to dive into those today. We did a series a few uh, months ago uh, called Mr. and Mrs. Wrong, and we dove specifically in the context of marriage around the topic of lust. If you missed that, go back and listen to that. Highly recommend that. But what I want to do is what I believe Jesus was after, the heart. And I think for those of us, especially the married people in the room, and even the people who are not married in the room, here's one of the things you got to understand. Well, it's your future spouse, your current spouse. They are your definition of beauty. So we lust after things that we want. We lust after maybe a, an image or something that, that we really you know, think, okay, well, that's it. Now, again, it, it, Let's have an exercise. Let's, let's have some fun, okay? Um, I, uh, fellas in the room, I want you to imagine the most beautiful, hottest, most attractive woman you ever possibly could, all right? Ladies in the room, same for you, not women, man. Uh, ladies in the room, I want you to imagine the most beautiful, handsome, attractive man you could ever imagine, the man of your dreams. Now again, some of you, like you're gonna ask, your wife's gonna ask you on the way home, that yeah, you better been imagining me. You better just been pulling out your wallet, the card, looking at the thing in your wallet, going, that's, that's it, that's right there. But look, let's all be honest. Most of us have so tainted and scarred and messed up minds from our sex-driven culture that we, when we think about that image, it is some airbrushed thing that we've seen at a grocery store. It's a person in that movie. It's that movie star. It's whatever. And we go, that's the definition of hot. That's what hotness looks like. That's beauty right there. 
And God throws that whole thing on his head and says, your logic is stupid because you don't understand a covenant. You're just living as a consumer. Again, if you do go to Aldi, again, some of their vegetables are kind of weird looking. You're going, okay, like even if this is a weird one and this is a really good looking, I'm going to pick the one that looks better. Again, we're not consumers. We're in a covenant, which is why when God created the covenant of marriage, he got Adam and Eve, right? Adam knocks him out. While he was asleep, he didn't take like seven ribs and then go, all right, here's this one with red hair. Here's this blonde. Here's this one with skin that's a little bit lighter. Here's this one with skin kind of in the middle. Here's this one with skin that's a little bit darker. Adam, wake up. Pick which one you want, man. No. He said, Adam, here's Eve. This is my beautiful creation that I have destined for you. You're in covenant together. So what that means for us, fellows in the room, let's, let's talk for a second. What that means is, um, there on your wedding day and night, that was your standard definition of beauty. That was, that was what is hot. Fast forward to after two kids. And things look different. But different does not mean not beautiful. Because the fact that that body does look different points to the fact that body has created some things that are a beautiful aspect of God's purpose and call for sex. Part of it was recreation. Part of it was procreation. That's your definition. As her hair begins to turn gray, as her emotions go haywire, as gravity sets in, stop and age those things look that is still yours yours and that is your definition of beauty and so we get so tainted and so clouded by all these other things that are out there and again I'm very much oversimplifying it right now because I'm just making it about how she looks I'm going to come back and we're going to paint this thing whole picture but ladies same deal you marry him, and he's like a size 32 waist, and you're trying to feed him more, like you're trying to win him over with food. Fast forward a few years. You know, fast forward out of quarantine, you're like, this guy. I'm going to have to buy him new pants. Like, he, he hasn't worn pants all year. Like, he's working from home. Like, he doesn't know that his pants don't fit him anymore. That is your definition of beauty. That is yours, ladies. That is yours. Again, I know for, for, for both male and female, and again, we're all on different spectrums. Some people have much more from the personality, much for the emotional connection. Some of us, much more men, we tend to be more hard, hardwired for what we see, not how someone makes us feel. But again, that's a very big part of it. That up until the point where you, go, you guys both go to be in glory with heaven and get brand spanking new bodies, by the way, that is your definition. Don't buy the lie. If, if you see it any other way, Here's how you know you're in a consumer relationship. You still think something else is hot and not the wife that may have a little more than she had a long time ago. Not the husband who may have a little less hair than he used to have. Or he, well, it's not really less. It's just in different places. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm there. Like, why is my nose? Like, my, Ital like my Italian-ness is coming out in my hairiness. Uh, Strange ears, nose, weird. Uh, anyway, now I am oversimplifying this to make a point about the physical side. But remember back when I talked about 
the problem with consumer-driven sex, the problem with sex outside of marriage, is it's asking somebody to do with their body what they're not doing with their whole life. See, this is what allows that person to become your standard definition of beauty. It's because you've seen inside their heart, life, and soul. You've walked with them through hellfire and brimstone. You've walked with them through the peaks and the valleys. You've been through them through those things. You're that old couple who can sit at Cracker Barrel and not say a word because you know everything about each other. And I'm telling you, and I'm hesitant to say this, but I'm telling you, young people in the room, and it the sex that you really want to have is being had by 60-year-olds who read their Bible together, know everything about each other, don't talk when they go to Cracker Barrel, because those people are in a covenant. And the amount of growth that has happened as both of them have grown closer to Jesus, the level of intimacy in their marriage would blow your mind. Now I know you don't feel like closing your eyes and imagining that, but that's the point, is you can't imagine it. And the physical, what it looks like on the outside part is just barely scratching the surface because those two people are actually in a God-given covenant and it gets better because it's getting deeper, because it's getting more in tune and more in rhythm with Jesus and his heart as he beats in your heart as a married couple. And that's why I believe it breaks his heart when we go outside of that covenant to try to get needs met. Isn't it crazy that, you know, if you think about it like this, like before you're married, Satan tries to do everything he can to get you to have sex. And then after you're married, he tries to do everything he can to get you to stop having sex. He knows how powerful it is. He knows how jacked up he can make it if you have a lot before you get married. And he knows how jacked up he can make it if you don't have a lot once you are married. So within his contract, within his covenant, that's how he wants it to be. Now, let's talk about lust for a second. I'm going to ask you a few questions. This will be where we land. In regards to lust and the things, whatever it is you're lusting after, let me ask you this question. What are you looking for it to give you? Whatever that you're lusting. If the it is whatever it is that you are lusting for. Now again, you can be lusting for a job. You can be lusting for um, a certain amount of money. Well, let's keep it specific to what Jesus is talking after here. What are you looking for it to give you? And, and look, here's some of you. How to say this? Um, let me preface it by saying this. First of all, you're not your spouse's Holy Spirit. You can help lead them by the power of the Holy Spirit, but you're not their Holy Spirit. And so when I say, what, what are you looking for in it? Don't write yourself off and think you're in the clear if the thing you're lusting after is your wife getting back to how she looked before kids. Don't fool yourself into thinking that it's any less sinful if the it that you're looking for is a husband who just knows what to do before you ask him to do it. No, it's them as they are right, and this is hard to swallow, it's them as they are right now. Because as they are right now is their standard definition of beauty. And if you're even even lusting, and I'm, I'm making it even more hard on you, sorry, even if you're lusting after a better or more improved version of them, you're not off scot free. That's not who they are right now. It's maybe who they can become. God maybe have put you in their life to help them get there. But that's not who they are right now. And if you're lusting after anything more than who they are exactly right now, you're sinning. 
and you're a consumer. Jesus says, turn your heart back to me. Next question I'll ask you is this. What good thing do I actually want for myself when I find myself lusting? So when you find yourself tempted, whether it's to pornography, whether it's to, to pick up a Shades of Grey because you heard your book club girls talking about it or to, to watch a movie or to whatever, when you're actually lusting after something, what is it that you actually want for yourself in it? What are you hoping comes of that? Next question. If you follow that lust that is in your heart, and this is hard, does it actually have the ability to get you that good thing that you want. So play it out. Follow through. You click on it. You watch it. You do those things. You get her attention. You find that hotel room. You do the thing that you would want to do if you knew there would be no punishment or repercussions. Is that going to get you what you really want? You actually want? You think that need will really be satisfied? If not, where might Jesus tell you to search for that same good thing? Where might he be saying, hey, it's not there, bud. I know the approval you're looking for that you didn't get for your earthly father and you're thinking that you may get it from here and you feel good because this girl is giving you this attention, but let me tell you, her approval has nothing compared to mine. Would you seek my approval? Would you learn that I've already given it to you? Would you fall into it? Last question, what if Jesus is offering you the same exact good thing that you want, just in a different place? In him. In him. In him alone. This past winter, I built a treehouse. Now the people who hear me say I built a treehouse, who have actually seen it, they go, Trent, you didn't build a treehouse, you built a tree mansion. Um, because it's pretty sweet. Um, it really is. And um, it was kind of in the middle of the winter. I was putting the finishing touches on it. Uh, the boys, I think, were at the in-laws, and Jessica was out doing Christmas shopping. And I'm, I'm in our woods, and, I'm, and the treehouse is probably already like 12 to 15 feet up in the air, and then it's like nine feet tall. And so I'm up on the top of it, and, I, and I've already kind of put the, um, the slats or the, the boards in for what will be the roof, and then I'm laying... Um, sheets of like tin roof down, like sheet metal. And I'm laying those down. I've got two of them in and I'm putting this all down. And it comes to the place where I'm at my last sheet of metal. All right. Now, again, I'm in just in work mode. I don't even understand what's going on, but I got my drill. And I'm just, I'm just drilling this thing in, just going after, going after it because I want to finish this before Christmas. I want the treehouse to be the boy's Christmas present. And so I'm going after it, doing everything I can to try to finish. And what I end up doing is because I know I can't get around the side is I actually go up on the parts of the roof that I know I've already built. And now I'm putting the roof on, on top of the roof. So I'm literally up on it and I'm drilling it in. And I finish that and I look around and I go, I'm on top of the roof. I didn't even realize that like I had just sealed myself in. And I look around and I'm looking at trees and I'm trying to figure out like, can I jump to that? And like Superman, Spider-Man down that like thing. Like I'm praying, I'm, I'm just confused. I'm like, oh my goodness, how, how in the world am I gonna get out of this? Like I'm, I'm, I'm seriously, like if you had came and looked at me in the woods that day, like I'm seriously like seeing like, are my legs long enough? And I'm like touching them down going like, can I reach this thing? And 
I honestly like had just sold it in. Like it started raining. My phone was down in the tree, like actually in the house, not on the roof of me. So I couldn't call anybody for help. Um, I was trying to get down in there. I'm just freaking out at this moment. And my wife is gone. Um, Chuck Rutledge is my neighbor who works for like a tree service company. I'm like, man, like his truck home, like, and they had just moved in. And so like every night Chuck was just like out in his woods with a chainsaw cutting down trees because that's just what he did for the first six months that he lived there. And he's a tree guy. Like he's just cutting them down. That's the way he does. Anyway, so like I'm on my roof and I just kind of mail it in and I just go, dang, like, I guess I'm going to have to wait for Jessica to get here um, to call like Jimmy Malcolm to go bring me a giant ladder or something. Or I'm going to have to wait for Chuck to get home and go down to the woods. I'm going to have to scream through the woods, Chuck, can you bring me a ladder? Like, I'm just freaking out. And I just kind of mail it in. It starts raining and I'm sitting there on a gray winter day in the middle of this rain and I'm going, dude, I'm just stuck. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And then I realized that I also had a drill. Yeah, I felt as stupid as I look right now. And I realized the same thing that got me into this can't get me out of this. And that's where some of you guys are at right now. Some of you are on the roof of your sin and your shame and you feel trapped you feel like, I, I don't know how I got here. Like, I just got in this mode. I was just trying to, trying to make people happy. I was just trying to do this good thing. But I don't know how I got up here. I don't know how to get down. I feel trapped. But here's all I want you to know. The same thing that got you into that trap is the exact same thing that got you out. What got you into whatever slavery, bondage, shame, or condemnation that you feel is worship. But it was worshiping the wrong thing. The only thing that can get you out is worship. But worshiping the right thing. So as we come into a time of communion, that's my hope. You you don't just overcome sexual sin by saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. You overcome it by saying, here's what I'm going to worship now. Here's where my eyes are going to be set. My my way out is by utilizing the same thing that got me in. Turning my heart to him. Saying, Jesus, you are what meets my needs. You are what brings me the approval. You are what heals these wounds. You are the only thing that doesn't just numb my pain, but heals my pain. As we come into communion with him today, I pray that you feel that freedom, the freedom that only he can bring because he brought it on the cross when he said, I am freeing you for not just sin, but from death. And so if he frees you from death, what does he come to give you? Life. A new life. From this moment forward, different life. Because of his grace and forgiveness. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you made a way out. That, that, that being a way maker is part of your identity. It's part of who you are. And I pray in these moments that you would even now begin to hard, uh, to rewire thought process. You begin to help us to eliminate cues that cause cravings in our hearts and that we would be people who, like we've read about in the Beatitudes, that begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we will understand that those are the places where our needs can truly be met. And then we would, God, become pure-hearted people and see you. And then the more we see you, the more pure our hearts become, the more we crave those things. And it would have been this beautiful cycle of walking hand in hand with the true creator, lover, sustainer of our souls. Jesus, we thank you. We need you. Meet us here in these moments. In your name.